0: Well good morning, it is uh, so good seeing all of you guys, welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, let's go to the Lord in prayer. First of all, uh, what a great week we had at VBS, To all of you and all the adults that participated and sacrificed for the whole week, uh, thank you guys so much. Um, What an excellent week, yeah, let's give them a hand, thank you guys. And as we go to the Lord in prayer, let's just lift up that as the, the seeds that we have planted and watered over the week, that they would take deep root in the hearts of our children. Also, um, before we pray, um, let's pray for for Ken Dick, for Ken and Wanda Dixon. As you know, we've uh, sent out an email. Um, he is at home in hospice care, being comfortable. And uh, right now, we are just waiting for the Lord to take him home. And so we're gonna we're trusting the Lord in this. And uh, so just lift up uh, the Dixon family in that. And then also, um, I received uh, information uh, from Karen Bonin. Her husband, Steve Bonin, has cancer. He had a 12-hour surgery. Uh, we were hoping that the news would be good, but it is not, which means he's going to need six to eight months of um, chemotherapy and possibly additional surgery. Um, and i just feel like i don't know about you guys i just feel like our church is just getting hammered um this is the year from hell um i'm just being honest and so let, let's pray let's let's ask the lord to show up and move just in the midst of just such trying difficult times so can you pray um where you are and then i will wrap it up as we go to the lord in prayer Our oh, Heavenly Father, um, this has been such a trying year for us as a church. Uh, we are all feel like just emotionally spent, and it's just one thing after another. And yet, regardless of what's happening right now in our church, we know that you are good. We know that you are faithful. We know that we belong to you. And that we know that you are committed and perfecting us. That you will never forsake us. You will never abandon us. That you who began a good work is going to finish it. Even when we feel drained. Because you are faithful. Even when we are unfaithful. And so Lord, we trust you. We live for you. Our lives belong to you. And Lord, I thank you for the incredible week we had with our children. We thank you that the gospel could be clearly proclaimed uh, throughout the week of VBS, Lord. And so can you take the seeds of the gospel that we've planted and watered, Lord, can you make it take deep root in the hearts of our children? Can you open up their eyes so they may understand the reality and the severity of their sin, that they will run to you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior, begging for your forgiveness, knowing that you you have provided a way for them to be forgiven for what you've done on the cross for them. And Lord, we thank you. We lift up our families and we pray that you would protect them and provide for them and that you would make yourself known to them. Lord, and I, I pray for, for, for Ken into your hands. We commit him. He belongs to you and you have saved him and you are going to bring home safely. And I pray for Wanda and for the girls and for the rest of the family. Lord, can you provide them peace? And Lord, we lift up Steve. Can you bring healing? Lord, we're trusting you for a miracle. Lord, can you do something that we cannot do? Can you heal? And Lord, I lift up our church. Lord, I lift up our marriages. You know what's going on. Lord, we just give them over to you. Can you protect us? Can you help us to to trust in you and cling to you? Lord, as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can we see your faithfulness in your word? Can you help us to behold you and be in awe of you? And Lord, can this time right now, this next 20 to 30 minutes, be such a sweet time where you're intimately meeting with us, making yourself known to us? May we be encouraged by you. And Lord, for those who do not know you, may they receive and hear the invitation of coming to you and find fulfillment in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 25, as we're continuing our series through uh, the letter to the Corinthians. And, and basically, what's happening in this letter, Paul is, is writing to the church of Corinth, addressing various issues. And, and basically, his main message in every issue that he is addressing, he's kind of reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's reminding them that they are God's holy people, that they belong to God. And if that is true, they must become what they are. In other words, if God has made you holy, what must you become? You must become holy, and so as God's holy people, they must mature in purity. In other words, in holiness, becoming more distinct from this world, and the more they grow in distinction from this world, the more they grow in holiness and purity, the more they will grow in unity, and so that's my hope for us as a church, that as we look at these various issues that they went through, these issues are applicable to us, that we would be encouraged to mature in purity, to grow in holiness. Why? Why? because we've been made holy by God, that we will become what we are. Now, as we look at our text today, Paul continues to address the matters that they wrote about. Uh, Last couple weeks, we've already seen how Paul gave them instructions on marriage and singleness and divorce. And the, uh, the general principle that he taught them is to remain in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. That means that regardless of your circumstances whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you're in a good marriage or in a bad marriage or whether you're going through a divorce or have already been divorced, right now in your circumstances, you can serve and please the Lord by keeping His commandments. And that your primary identity is not in your marital status, it's not in your social status, but is in the fact that you've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now today... We're wrapping up chapter 7. Paul is going to address engaged people who are planning to get married and whether they should pursue marriage. Now, it does seem like at first when we look at it, that the Corinthians might have believed that it was sinful to get married considering the present distress, and Paul responded like it's not sinful to get married, it might not be the wisest at this time, and so one of the works we kind of need to do um, is to figure out what in the world does Paul mean by this present distress. And how do we apply this to our lives? Because I know this is part of the passage where people debate whether you should get married or not. And I don't know if it's really Paul's intentions. So let's kind of look at the passage. Let's be careful of how we apply it to our lives. And then let's look at some, some applications that will be practical, and uh, not just for those that are engaged, but for all of us. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. It says this, Now, about virgins, or in some of your translations, it will say to the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. So right off the bat, we see Paul is addressing a group who are betrothed. In other words, they are engaged, and they are in the process of getting married. And again, right off the bat, Paul tells us in verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, he is saying, look, Jesus didn't really give instructions on this particular situation because this particular situation did not come up in his ministry context. And so Paul says, I don't have any commands from the Lord, but I do offer an opinion, a recommendation. So basically, verses 25 to 40, he shares his reasoned opinion or his reasoned recommendation on this matter. So that means that what Paul has to say on this matter is not a command, but rather an advice. Rather an opinion by which the church could could either take it or not. So what's the opinion? What's the recommendation that Paul gives them? Look at verse 26. He says this. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So what's his opinion? What's his recommendation? Because of this present distress, remain as you are. Now the question we have to ask ourselves and try to answer is, what does Paul mean by this present distress? Um, And I'm just going to give you a little footnote here. Um, I could be wrong. You can disagree with me. Um, I don't think it's very clear on which... Option is the best option, but I'm going to have to pick an option to kind of try to unpack the text, okay? So that's my little uh, disclosure. So here's two options we have, and both could be correct, or maybe one of them could be correct. The, the first option we have is this present distress could refer to the crisis of the decay of society when it comes to morality, where we're waiting for Jesus to come back. In other words, history is not in an upward trajectory, but history is kind of going in a... Right now, it feels like a nosedive, but it's going downwards, okay? This present so the present distress could refer to the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming, where we know things are going to get more difficult until we wait for Jesus to come back and to make all things new. That's option one. Option two, the present distress could refer to a specific event, now during the time of which Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, around AD 51, there was a severe famine in the land, there was a grain shortage, and this caused a massive uprising. This crisis led to a social unrest where there was tons of rioting, and also economic uncertainty where people were panic buying and, and kind of hoarding all of these things. And this, this, this crisis lasted for about five years. Years. So again, option one is, is it the time, the crisis between Jesus' first coming and second coming where life is just kind of falling apart, things are not getting better, or is it a specific time period that Paul is referring to this, this famine during five years? Which one is it? Again, you can disagree. It could be both. It could be just one. Um But when I study the passage, I do think the second view is more likely. And here's why I say this. Because I think it goes in lines with Paul's recommendation to remain engaged. So in other words, what I mean by that is, if Paul was referring to the present crisis that basically would last their entire life between Jesus' first coming and second coming, why would he not just say to them, hey, just break up the marriage. Don't just get married whatsoever. But rather, he says, remain as you are. In other words, if you're engaged, remain engaged. So if that is true, and again, it could be wrong, but I I have just a sneaking suspicion it might be true. That means like when we read this passage and we look at Paul's recommendation, it applies directly to the Corinthians in light of the present distress that they are facing. That they are experiencing, which means we can't take this recommendation and apply it to us in every circumstances. So in other words, what I mean by that is I don't think there's two extremes when we look at the passage. I don't think the correct way of looking at this passage is kind of taking this general principle and apply it to our lives saying, hey, it is okay to get married, but it's better to remain single. In other words, only the super mature Christians are are single and it's more strategic for you to remain single because I don't think that's always the case. There are times where getting married might be more strategic in serving the Lord. You're like, in which way? Like Maybe as a missionary being single could be more strategic, but I know in pastoral ministry getting married or being married is a great strategic advantage because not only are you ministering to the people, but your spouse and with your children together are ministering to the people. But then I also don't think the opposite extreme is to kind of say, well, let's, let's just ignore this passage. There's no application to it because there is a principle. In other words, there are times where when you're engaged, where getting married in light of the circumstances or the situations that you're facing might not be the best option. Maybe it does mean for a season there should be somewhat of a delay. So again, let's not take the passage and go to two extremes. If you're single, you're a superior Christian, that being single is the ultimate strategy. That's not what Paul is saying. But it also that doesn't mean let's just ignore it because Paul's writing to the church in Corinth has nothing to do with us. No, there's certainly a principle where you're saying if you're engaged and maybe you find yourself in unfavorable circumstances, maybe the best option is to remain where you are as you navigate through the situation or the circumstances. Everybody follow? Uh, So Paul's recommendation, in light of this present distress, remain as you are. And he kind of explains what he means to remain as you are in verse 27. In other words, he says, if you're engaged, stay engaged. If you're single, don't get engaged, stay single. In other words, wait to marry until this present distress, whatever it is, dissolves. And again, this is an opinion from Paul, not a command. And he reminds them in verse 28. But if you decide to get married, you've not sinned. And then Paul gives them the reason why he gives this recommendation. By them getting married, he is saying, you're kind of complicated life a little bit more. Because of this present distress of what they're facing, life is already difficult. Getting married is not going to make life easier is going to make life a little bit more difficult and Paul says I desire to spare you from these unnecessary hardships so here we kind of see his heart like why is he recommending to those who are engaged to not marry at during this present distress because he does not want them to go through unnecessary hardships he's trying to spare them from that because marriage does not fix your problems what does marriage do It complicates it. It makes it more difficult. And he continues to further explain why he says to them, do not uh, remain as they are. Look at verse 29 here. He says, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none." Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as those who, that didn't uh, own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. Now, now this is kind of like just weird the way Paul puts it but basically what he is saying is this here's the reason why you need to remain as you are during this present distress because the appointed time is short like life on this earth is short which means as Christians we should prioritize eternal realities over transient realities in other words how do we view marriage we should view marriage in its proper place is marriage eternal? No, which means it is temporary. So, so the Christian, when the, the, the five examples, would, as Christians, we should view marriage and mourning and rejoicing and buying possessions and using worldly things in its proper perspective. Like these five things that Paul mentions to us, they're not inherently sinful. They are good gifts from the Lord that we can still use to bring glory to God but they are not of ultimate importance. Why? Because they are temporary. And as Christians, we must view these activities in its proper place as one plans about what to do, especially in a time of crisis. In other words, what Paul is saying is, and maybe this will be more helpful for you guys. When we find ourselves in a time of crisis, and we feel like our walls are closing in, our world is falling apart, we have a tendency to think that life is over, right? And what Paul is saying in a sense is, no, think about it with eternal realities. As you find yourself in a crisis and you feel like your world is falling apart, As we think about eternity, all these things are passing away, which means what about our crisis? Is our crisis eternal? No, our crisis might be big and our crisis might be severe, but our crisis is only temporary. And so we need to view these things from the world that are passing away from that perspective they are only temporary which means that as we navigate through this crisis we have to have eternally in mind in other words it's like yes i'm in this crisis and i feel like everything is falling apart but it's going to be okay why it's going to come to an end we don't know how long but we know it is temporary and this is what paul is meaning we have to look at the activities of this world like our marriage. Like the season we find ourselves in mourning or the season we find ourselves in rejoicing or the seasons we find ourselves, should I buy this house? Should I not buy this house? Should I buy this car? Should I not buy this car? Should I go with this career? Should I not go with this career? Should I move here? Should I not? All of those are big decisions that we have to make and we kind of run around in circles trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. And I think a principle that Paul gives us is saying, hey, those things are good things and those things are somewhat important things but those things are not ultimate importance why because they are temporary and even let's say hypothetically you make the wrong decision and you buy a house that ends up being a money pit are you going to live in that house for all eternity no it is temporary it is fading away it's not going to be transferred into the next world The world that Jesus is renewing, that making everything new. So that's what he's trying to remind them of. Time is short. So so here's the reason why Paul gives this recommendation on remaining where they are. He desires to spare them from any unnecessary hardships. He wants to remind them that time is limited. All of these worldly activities, they need to be viewed in its proper perspective. That they are fading away. They are not eternal. And then he gives the third reason for his recommendation. Look at verse 32. He says this, "I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided." The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So Paul continues saying, why should you remain as you are? In light of this present distress, because I want you to be without concerns. In other words, he does not want them to be tied up with unnecessary anxieties, especially in light of the present distress. Because if you're unmarried and you find yourself in a crisis, it is a difficult time. But it's not as difficult when you have a spouse, And when you have kids so for example when i was single and i made a dumb decision it impacts me yeah sometimes it's a big deal but sometimes it's not as big because i'm single but if i'm married and i have children and i make a dumb decision now it impacts and paul is saying especially in this time of crisis here is an opportunity to serve the lord in a way that does not distract you you could be more devoted but when you're married and you find yourself in a crisis not only do you have to worry about yourself but you also have to worry about your spouse and your children and look now he applies this principle of remaining where they are in light of this present distress and then he provides this final conclusion look look at verse um look at verse 36 it says this, If any man thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin, he's engaged to, if she's getting beyond the usual age for marriage, and he feels he should marry. He can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance, will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do even better. So in other words, Paul is not asserting that in overall, in all situations, marriage is fine and singleness is better, but rather he is talking about in light of this present distress that they are facing, it is good for engaged couples to hold it off, to remain as they are until they navigate through it. And then in verse 39, he reminds them of the weight and the responsibilities of marriage. He says this, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So what does Paul do? He reminds them, based on his recommendation, remain as you are, and he gives reasons for his recommendation. He does not want them to have unnecessary burden. Time is short. Look at things from eternal perspective. Do not have concerns or unnecessary restraint on them in this time of distress. And regardless of what they choose, they're they're not sinning. It's just one way might be more wise than the other. And then he graciously reminds them, think about the weight of marriage. Think about the responsibility of marriage. Marriage is not eternal. Marriage is temporary. But when you enter into that covenant, what gets you out of that covenant? Death. That is the weight. And then Paul wraps it up and he says... um, And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Now, obviously, as you can imagine, maybe I did not unpack the text, but you read this text maybe for the very first time. Your, your automatic opinion, you're, you're about, you're engaged, you want to get married. And what's your, what's your very first thought? Who does this guy think he is? And so maybe the church in Corinth wrote to him about the stuff and they're reading this letter and he knows in the back of their mind, they're thinking, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. We know what we're doing because we have the spirit of God. And and Paul was saying, hey, don't so easily dismiss my recommendation for you because I too have the spirit of God in me. So, so let's wrap it up. Let's talk about some application here. Okay. Okay. I think as Paul's advice in view of the present distress that the church of Corinth was facing, I think we need to be careful in how we apply this to our lives. Like I don't think it's wise for us to take this general principle saying, hey, it's good to get married, but it's better to remain single. I don't think that is a wise application. However, I think it's a wise application where Paul says, there are certain circumstances, there are certain situations or crises where it might not be the wisest thing to get married right now. Well, you might have to remain where you are. I can certainly think of, uh, of circumstances in our life. For example, if you have a job where it requires you to work 100 hours a week, guess what? I don't think marriage is going to be the best option for you unless you quit your job and find a new career. Because anybody wants to be married to somebody who works 100 hours a week... You want to sign up for that? No? Okay. Or maybe you go through law school or medical school and it requires late hours of the night to study. That might not be the best option. And it doesn't mean you getting married is sinful. It might not be the wisest. Now, for some of you, are like, well, what does that have to do with me? I think here's two applications that's applicable for everybody in light of the passage. The first one is this. Based on Paul's recommendation of remaining where you are in light of the present crisis, like a kind of a little um, undertone theme that really he's unpacking is this, if you're taking notes, is this. Consider the responsibility and commitment of marriage. That's what we need to do. Like, in other words, marriage is not something we should just willy-nilly get into. Even if you are married, you need to constantly be reminded of the responsibility and the weight that you've signed yourself up for. Because marriage is for for life. Marriage is, is hard work. If it was easy, there will not be such a thing as divorce. But divorce has become a reality for almost all of us. Marriage is hard because think about the recipe of marriage. It's really a recipe of a disaster. When you have one self-centered, selfish, narcissistic, prideful person living by himself, and you add another selfish, prideful, narcissistic, insecure, neurotic person, and you put them together, one plus one equals life is better, right? No, like like, like it equals a recipe for a disaster. And this is what marriage does. Marriage reveals to you how selfish, how self-centered, and how prideful, and how insecure you are. It brings out the very worst out of you. Anybody wanna sign up for that? Like like, like, really think about the vows. I know in today's marriage, we really don't give vows. We're like, oh, I love you, you complete me. That's not vows, that's just you expressing how you feel. But if you really think about the vows that you're making, you're saying, I'm committing myself to you. I'm going, regardless of how you act, I'm going to love you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to respect you. I'm going to cherish you. I'm going to forsake all others and be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. Which, in other words, the only condition is death. But in the covenant that you're making, you're saying, regardless of how you're acting, whether you've gained 500 pounds. Or whether you're just this mean person. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to honor you. And the only thing that's going to make me cause to break that commitment is if one of us dies. Like who wants to sign up for that? And yet, what does the Lord do? The Lord uses marriage... And He saves us. How does He save us through our marriage? Not providing us with a good spouse, but providing us with a spouse that draws out that sin and exposes that sin for what it is. And until we come to the position where we realize it's not our spouse's fault for why we're acting, but rather the sin inside of us, the Lord exposes it and the Lord graciously deals with it. Consider the weight and responsibility. Now, I will tell you this in my years of ministry. My number one responsibility of officiating a marriage is not the, the ceremony. I think it's better maybe to hire an actor. He'll probably do a better job than me. But the most important task for the pastor who's officiating it is to prepare the couple with the commitment and the weight of responsibility. And if that pastor refuses to do that, you should tell him he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. Because the role of the pastor officiating it is helping the couple make the covenant with one another and with God. And the audience is bearing witness. And how cruel will it be to sign two kids up for something they don't know what they're really signing up for? Consider the weight and the responsibility of marriage. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. And yet we see the Lord's grace working in marriage where he redeems us as he exposes our sin. So if you're about to get married, consider the weight, consider responsibility. If you are married and you want to give up, consider the weight, consider the responsibility. I know it is hard and I feel like you, you might be hating the other person. You hate their guts. You hate the very presence of them because they make you so angry. And yet that is God graciously exposing the sin inside of you because he does not want you to continue to live with that sin. He wants to bring it out so he can deal with it. So my advice to you is run to the cross of Jesus Christ where he has paid for it, where he can set you free, where there can be forgiveness. The, The second application is this. If you're taking notes, and I think it's applicable for all of us. As Christians, we need to view the things of this world in its proper place. We need to view the things of, its, of this world in its proper place. The things of this world is temporary, okay? Y'all know that? The house you just bought is temporary. Your spouse and your children, I hate to admit it, they're going to die. It's temporary. The new puppy you got, temporary. The new car you drove off the lot, temporary. The new toy you saved up for, temporary. Now let me ask you this question. If something is temporary, can it ultimately satisfy? No. Why can it not ultimately satisfy? Because it's, it's temporary. So, in other words, the things of this world, because it is temporary, can it satisfy a little bit? Yeah, some of it's fun. Some of it's great. There's joy in some of these things. But it can never fully satisfy because it's only temporary. So, why do we chase after things thinking it will satisfy, knowing it is only temporary? It's like taking a pack of gum and chewing it for the first 20 seconds as it bursts with flavor in your mouth, thinking that flavor is going to last forever. What happens to that flavor? Goes out and it just wears out your jaws. And it's become useless that causes you to spit it out and put another piece of gum in it, hoping it would satisfy. And yet, you have to do the same old thing over and over. So be reminded as Christians... The things of this world will not satisfy because it is only temporary, which means what? Where do we find ultimate satisfaction in the one that is not temporary but is eternal, the one who has always existed, the one who will always exist, as Paul says in Colossians, the one who spoke everything into existence, who's the image of the invisible God, for everything was created for him and by him and through him. His name is Jesus. And he made himself known, and he put on flesh, and he walked on this earth. Becoming fully man and yet remaining fully God. And what did he come to do? He came to redeem us. And he came to set us free from the bondages of sin and spare us from the wrath of God. And when he came, what did he continually promise? He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He tells the woman at the well, quit chasing after that water that's never gonna provide for your thirst, but come and drink of this living water and you will be eternally satisfied. Don't eat this bread. Don't acquire this stuff where where moth and rust is going to destroy it. But come to me and eat this living bread and you will never hunger and you will never thirst again. This is what he promises and this is what he provides. Eternal satisfaction, eternal rest and eternal life. And how do we know that he can provide that? Because he himself is eternal. Eternal. If he wasn't, then he would be like the things of this world, temporarily satisfy. But he is eternal. And how do we know that he will satisfy? Because he's faithful. Not only is he eternal, but he is faithful in keeping his promises, which means every promise he makes to us is as good as done. So why run after the temporary things of this world? that will never be able to satisfy, where Jesus stands here and invites you to come and be satisfied in Him, invites you to come and find rest in Him, invites you to come and to drink from Him and to eat from Him, and will never be hungry or thirsty again. And So the invitation is for the non-believer to come and trust in Him. The invitation is for the believer to come and... Trust in Him. Be fulfilled in Him. Let me pray for us as we get to the table. Lord, we thank You that You satisfy. We thank You that You fulfill. We thank You that You are eternal, knowing that You will eternally satisfy us and that You offer us rest. You offer us eternal life. When we drink of you, we will never thirsty again. When we eat of you, we will never be hungry again. So Lord, in our circumstances, in the crisis or the present distress we face, whatever that looks like, help us to come to you instead of running after the temporary things of this world. Help us to trust you. Lord, in our marriages. Lord, for some of us, we are in a good season of marriage. For some of us, not so good. Can you help us to see, first of all, that our marriage are not meant to satisfy, but you do use them to save us where you expose our sins. And so, Lord, can you help us in our conflict, instead of blaming our spouse, help us to inspect our own hearts and help us to confess those sins as you bring them to light. And for those that are about to get married, can you give them wisdom? Can you give them clarity of whether they should remain as they are or whether they should continue? So please help us, Lord.